Good morning. How are you guys this morning? Can you hear me okay? Does it matter? I think it matters. That's better. I am David Mercer. I'm a lay pastor here at One Community. Dwayne's traveling this week, so I agreed to pitch hit for him and continue our study of the book of Ezra. So I'm going to do something I don't normally do when I teach, and that is I'm just going to tell you the bottom line right from the beginning. Okay? Here's the bottom line. Who is our commander? God is our commander. Who is our king? Our king is King Jesus. The American revolutionary soldiers that would go into battle oftentimes chanting this chant, no king but King Jesus. He is our king and our commander. That's the point of the lesson today. Now you might say, okay, great, can we go home? No. Okay, we're going to stay and we're going to get to that point. So we're going to look at chapter 5 of the book of Ezra. You might be turning there, even though it may be a few minutes before we actually get to that text. Our God is a building God. Even as we speak this morning, right now, God is building his kingdom And he is calling each one of us into the service of building his kingdom. We need to know that as a church because that is a biblical truth. Now to get to that point, we're going to study this book of Ezra. And you know, there's a real popular trend in movies and stories today to do the prequel. So before we review the book of Ezra and actually get to chapter 5, I want to do a quick prequel for what's happening at this point in time in the nation of Israel. At this point in time... Prior to this point in time, actually, God chose the nation Israel to be his people, to to share a special relationship with him. And to seal that relationship, God made a covenant with them. Now, don't get tripped up on that word. A covenant is merely a promise or an agreement, but in this case, it's really more akin to a wedding vow. God made a covenant with Israel. And this covenant set boundaries and expectations and responsibilities for the relationship between the nation of Israel and God. Now, God chose Israel. He made a covenant with them for one clear redemptive purpose. And that purpose is to draw all nations to the salvation of God. And we know this with absolute certainty because the book of Isaiah in chapter 49, verse 6, tells us this. It says, I will also give you... Israel, I will give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And church, that is our purpose. We are to call people to God's salvation to the ends of the earth. But at the beginning of the book of Ezra, we see that God's covenant relationship with his chosen people Israel has gone horribly wrong. Not because of anything God did or didn't do, but because the Israelites had strayed from God. In chapter 1 of Ezra, we see that after Israel rejected their relationship with God and repeatedly violated the covenant between God and Israel, God allowed them to be taken into exile and conquered and taken into the nation of Babylon. At this moment in time, the Israelites were literally in bondage. They were captives without a temple, outcast from the promised land, and had no means to obey the law, worship God, as set forth in the law. They were, in essence, exiled 
from a full relationship with God, a relationship for which they had been created and chosen. And Ezra chapter 1 shows us that despite Israel's bondage and spiritual deadness, that God began the supernatural work of revival amongst them. We see that God began to move in the heart of a pagan king in an astounding, unexplicable way. God was also fulfilling the specific and ancient prophecies of Jeremiah and Isaiah, and God was moving amongst his own people, calling them to forgiveness, restoration, and relationship. And never forget that the purpose of this revival was so that Israel could fulfill their their role as God's chosen people, as their demonstration of God's salvation. Now, the last time I preached, I told you that the temple was like God's wedding ring to the nation of Israel. It was a concrete, clear, and physical symbol of God's marriage to Israel, the nation chosen to show the world who God is. Now, I'm going to guess that a lot of you guys have these things on your left hand. I've had this on for many, many years, and I hate it when I have to take it off for any reason. It's only happened a couple of times since I've been married to Tracy. Took it off to get clean. Hated it. I like this. I love this. This is an illustration to the world of a commitment and covenant that I made with my wife. God did not like the lack of a temple. And so he moved among his people and he said, we're going to rebuild the temple. Now, what a remarkable thing to say at that point. They are slaves and captives in the most powerful nation on the planet, and they have to be saying to themselves, how's that going to work? And God supernaturally begins to move the pieces to accomplish that great and mighty work of rebuilding the temple. Then we get to Ezra chapter 2, and we see that God specifically calls his children. Now, these are real people. They are people with names people with careers, people with families. In other words, they're us. God calls real people into the process of rebuilding the temple to do God's work. And God not only calls people, he provides the needed resources. It's interesting when you read uh, Ezra 2, you see something that happens to the people of God they begin to freely give God their resources for this heavenly work. And it occurred to me as I was preparing to preach this morning that true revival has a remarkable impact on our hearts. It increases and clarifies our understanding of the value of eternal things, and at the same time, it reveals the lack of value of earthly things. As we answer God's call to build with him his kingdom, God works in our hearts, and teaches us to love the things of God more than the things of this world. In fact, there's an old hymn that I'm going to guess a lot of you know. The hymn's Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. And that hymn says, And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God works in our hearts to make us understand that what matters in this world is not this world. It is heavenly, eternal things. That brings us to Ezra chapter 3. where we see the work actually beginning. Now, in Ezra 3, something really important happened. The very first thing built by the Israelites upon their return to Jerusalem is the altar for sacrifices. This is huge. 
truly following God's call upon our lives to build in his kingdom and to work in his kingdom starts with and requires sacrifice and a right relationship with God. Before a single stone of the temple was laid, the Israelites first reinstituted the sacrifices necessary to be in right relationship with God. Only after restoring their covenant relationship with God did the Israelites begin laying the foundation of the temple building. Now chapter 3 shows us the actual moment when they laid the first stone for the foundation of the temple. It's very interesting. In verse 11 of chapter 3, we get to witness this first foundational stone, and here's what it says. With praise and thanksgiving, they, the Israelites, sang to the Lord, He is good, His love towards Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. Now get this. The true foundation of our relationship with God and serving God in his kingdom is God's goodness and his eternal love for us. That brings us to chapter 4. There is something that is true in the work of God, and we see it in chapter 4. Anytime be God begins the work in us and through us. Guess who comes along to challenge that? Satan. And that's what we see in, verse, or in chapter 4. Any true work of God is going to face opposition. And here Satan attacked the Israelites' effort to answer God's call to rebuild the temple. And chapter 4 is fascinating because it gives us an insight into Satan's playbook. And guess what? It never has changed, ever. Satan is still in the business of frustrating and trying to attack the works of God through us and in us and by us. And we see at least three things that Satan does here in chapter 4 that are very relevant to where we are as a church. The first play in Satan's attack upon the works of God is a proposed compromise. And in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, we see that the Israelites were offer, offered help. If you're looking down, I'm using air quotation marks. They were offered help by a people group that were in the promised land who had not been taken into exile. They were related to people who eventually became the people group known as Samaritans. Here's the thing. These people were not true worshipers and followers of God. In fact, they had a polytheistic culture, and they were perfectly willing to say, yep, we believe in the God of Israel, but at the same time, we believe in these other gods, too. They denied the one true God. And more importantly than that, they come along and try to show their bona fides and their credentials, and they say, hey, look, we've been, we've been sacrificing. We're good. But guess what? Their sacrifices were presumptuous, and arrogant because they didn't have the right way to do it with the temple. And so they come along and they say, hey, people of Israel, we're here to help you. Well, what Satan is doing is he's throwing a proposed compromise at the people of God. Their offer of help proposed stepping outside of God's plans and provision to outside help that was not godly help. Satan will oftentimes offer up help to the people of God, that help is a compromise that is not of God. And we have to be careful of that. We must always get help 
only from God, within God's plan, and within God's provision. So not only did Satan offer a proposed compromise, the next step in his attack against Israel was to bring about discouragement and frustration. We see in Ezra 4.4, it says, Then the people of the land tried to discourage the people of Judah. They troubled them in building and hired counselors against them. That probably means lawyers, by the way. They hired counselors. I'm a lawyer, so that barely is offensive. But they hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Know that when we follow God in the path of building his kingdom, Satan will constantly shoot at us the arrows of frustration. He will shoot us the arrows of discouragement. That's the second play in Satan's playbook. Then we come to direct opposition. In Ezra chapter 4, verses 6 through 16, we see that there were people who just directly intervened and opposed the rebuilding of the temple. If you look at verses 23 and 24 of Ezra 4, it says, Now when the copy of King Artaxerxes' letter was read before Rehum, Shemsheh, the scribe, and their companions, they went up in haste to Jerusalem against the Jews and by force of arms made them cease. Thus the work of the house of God, which is at Jerusalem, ceased. And it was discontinued until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now, there is a temptation when we hit this verse to say, wow, the plans of God were defeated. No, that is absolutely wrong. There was a delay, but God in his sovereignty allowed that delay because he wanted to ultimately bring victory to the Jews and glory to his name. There is no delay that is a defeat. There is no delay that is a failure. All are a part of God's sovereign plan to ultimately bring victory to his people and glory to his name. But make no mistake, this is a dark moment. I mean, the Jews have come back from Babylon. They have an edict from the king at that time saying, you can rebuild. They've got people, they've got resources. It's going, and then it stops. It's a dark moment. One of my favorite bluegrass hymns is a song that talks about the darkest hour is just before the dawn. There are going to be dark times as we serve God. But God is sovereignly in control, always. And there is no defeat in the plans and purposes of God. Now, all of this, that I've discussed so far happened around 587 B.C. I did the math, which is it always scary when I say I did the math, but I did the math, and it seems like this stuff happened about 2,610 years ago. And so, there might be a temptation to say, what does this have to do with us? I mean, this was 2,600 years ago in a foreign country. What does this have to do with us? Well, let me tell you, it matters because the same God of Ezra who called Israel to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem 2,600 years ago is the same God who is on the move in Rogersville, Missouri in 2023. And he is calling us into the work of building his kingdom here. Same God. And when we see how he is and who he is and what he does in the days of Ezra, 
we know that that God does not change. And he is the God guiding and directing us as we go about the process of building in God's kingdom in Rogersville, Missouri. The time and location may have changed, but the eternal God has not changed. And so as a church, we've been called by God to build in his kingdom, and that brings us, you might say, finally to Ezra 5. Will you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a building God. You call us to revival. You call us to build in your name, all to show your salvation to a lost and dark world, all to glorify who you are and to bring glory to your son, Jesus. We ask that you would guide us and direct us in this study of Ezra 5 and show us what you would have us know. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, open up to Ezra 5, and we're going to look at the whole chapter. It's not going to take nearly as long as you think. We're going to look first at verses 1 and 2. So read these with me. Then the prophet Haggai and Zechariah, the son of Idu, prophet, prophesied to the Jew who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Note that phrase. So Zerubbabel, the son of Shetiel, and Yeshua, the son of Josadak, rose up and began to build the house of God, which was in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, helping them. Now, in the Old Testament, it's very important for you to understand the function and the purpose of prophets. Prophets in the Old Testament were called upon to be the voice of God to God's people, the voice of truth, the voice of encouragement, the voice of God himself. And in the book of Ezra, in the middle of a temple-building project that had stalled, two such prophets are called to speak on behalf of God, Haggai and Zechariah. Now, Haggai spoke God's blunt truth to the Israelites, and here's what he said. On behalf of God, Haggai told the Israelites, that their hearts had wandered away from loving God and from loving the rebuilding project that God had placed before them. And instead of loving God, Haggai told the Israelites that they had come to love themselves and their own comfort more than the work of God. Now it's interesting, I, I love names in the Old Testament especially. It's interesting, the name Haggai calls people back to a relationship with God. Here's what it means. The word and name Haggai means festival of Yahweh, or together for a covenant feast or celebration. Even Haggai's name calls the Israelites back to their right and proper place. What is that? It's in a relationship with the God of eternity where they can have celebration and joy in the relationship of God living with them. Zechariah, on the other hand, he spoke a similar truth, but he also provided encouragement and an eternal perspective on this building project. I'm a big fan of the commentator David Guzik, and here's what he says about Zechariah. The name Zechariah means the Lord remembers and is a fitting name for a prophet of restoration. This prophet was called to encourage and mobilize God's people to accomplish a task that they began, yet lost momentum in completing. He encouraged them indirectly by telling them about God's care for them and by keeping the presence of the Messiah very much in their minds. 
he goes on to say that combined Haggai and Zechariah speak the whole truth of God to the nation of Israel. He says, if all we had was Haggai to go by, we might conclude that all God was really interested in was the temple. Zechariah gives the rest of the story and shows how God is interested in lives, not only buildings. One community, God is keenly interested in our efforts to build in his kingdom, but God is equally interested in building faith, hope, and love, and holiness into our lives. Never confuse any physical building project with God's ongoing building project in our hearts and lives as we are transformed into the likeness of Christ. You might recall that at the close of Ezra 4, there was a voice of an earthly king, Artaxerxes. And Artaxerxes decreed that the building of the temple should cease. In fact, that decree was enforced by arms by military people, and the building stopped. And now we come to the beginning of Ezra 5, and God, through his prophet, God the eternal king, causes the rebuilding to resume. Indeed, in verse 1 of Ezra 5, we are told that these two prophets spoke in the name of the God of Israel who was over them. Now note this one community, Ezra 5.1 teaches us that there is a God who is over us, who is the true and only king and authority. Now, I don't want to spin off into the topic of obeying earthly authorities versus obeying heavenly authorities. That's a different sermon for a different day. But I do want to remind us of something that Jesus said about this in Matthew 22. In that passage, in verses 17 through 22, the Pharisees asked Jesus a trick question. They were really good at that. They asked him this question. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now here's the trick. If Jesus says yes, then he's going to be reviled for, for supporting Caesar. If he says no, he's in violation of the rule of Rome and subject to prosecution. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 22. He says, why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled and left him and went away. Here's the answer. God is the king. God is the commander. We answer to him. We were made in his image. His image is stamped upon us. And as the image bearers of God, we are answerable to his authority. Here, the king of heaven spoke to the Israelites through Haggai and Zechariah and called them to listen to his voice, even if that voice conflicted with the earlier pronouncement of the earthly king, Artaxerxes. As a body of Christ and as the church, we exist to proclaim the name of God and that God alone is over us. He is our one and only King and his voice and his voice alone we obey. Now in verse 3 of Ezra 5, we see this. At the same time, Hatani, the governor of the region beyond the river, 
and Shethar Bosnai and their companions came to them and spoke thus to them. So they're talking to the Jews, and here's what they say. Now, if I was to identify a single verse that is the core of Ezra 5, it's the next verse. Katani comes to them and he says, Who has commanded you that you build this temple and finish this wall? That's the question that we as a church face every day. Who has commanded us? Who is our king? And here's what they said. They said, Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. Then a written answer was returned concerning the matter, and this is a copy of the letter that Tatanai sent. Now here we see another page book, or playbook from the, uh, the, we see a play from the playbook of Satan, bureaucracy. Now listen, I work for a government entity since 1999. I know bureaucracy. Nobody knows bureaucracy like the government. In fact, I can't even hang a picture on the wall of my own office without getting authorization and a government worker to come and do it for me. I know bureaucracy, okay? And sometimes Satan uses bureaucracy to gum up the works and make things difficult. And sometimes the work of God's kingdom is slowed by, frustrated by, and must steer through earthly bureaucracy. This may be an earthly reality, but it's not the end of the matter. So look at what happens next. Governor Tatanai sought to identify the earthly authority for this building project, but in so doing, he evoked the heavenly authority of God who was driving this rebuilding project. And we see this oftentimes in Scripture. God uses earthly authorities to unwittingly speak eternal truth. The most classic example I can think of is the chief priest Ananias saying, isn't it better for one guy to die for the whole nation than the whole nation to die? I mean, one of the clearest prophecies of the work of the Messiah in all of Scripture, uttered by an evil high priest who was trying to murder God's Messiah. And yet, in doing that, God speaks an absolute eternal heavenly truth, just like this governor spoke here by asking the question, who's in charge? Who's commanding you? Who's making you do these things? To the question of who commanded you to build this temple, there is one answer, and one answer only. It was a powerful reminder to the nation of Israel that God himself commanded this rebuilding. Now look at verse 5. They face bureaucracy, but God overcomes that. And listen to what verse 5, and this says, this is critical. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. God, in his eternal watchfulness, is watching what's happening. And church, as we go out into the world and serve God and build in his kingdom as we are called to do, never for one second make the mistake of thinking that God is not watching what happens. The eyes of God are eternal upon us as we serve him and build in his kingdom. Why? 
because he wants to provide a solution. Look at, look at what uh, Psalm 35:15 says. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their cry. A very similar verse is found in Job 36:7, where Job says, He does not withdraw his eyes from the righteous, but they are on the throne with kings, for he has seated them forever, and they are exalted. Now consider this. As we serve the living God, as we build in his kingdom, as we are called to do, he doesn't say, here's the blueprint, here's the materials, hope it works out for you, good luck. That is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a God who creates plans and purposes and provisions and people, and he himself goes before all of those things to make a way. His eyes are constantly on us because he loves us, he is our Father, and he wants to bring glory to his name by us and through us. He watches us every second of every day as we answer the call upon our lives. God, our Father, never calls upon us to build in his kingdom alone or without his watchful and powerful presence. Here, God sees the obstacles, the bureaucracies to this rebuilding, and he provides a remedy and a solution to this this problem. In fact, it's interesting, it says, but God. If you look at the passage, what it's saying is, but God made it possible for the building to continue until they could put the matter before an earthly king, Darius. Any obstacle that Satan throws against the works of God Anyone can be answered by these two words, but God. I don't care if it's discouragement, proposed compromise, direct assault, but God. God is in charge. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign. His plans will never fail. Where God guides, God provides. I so much wanted to take credit for that, but I couldn't. Somebody else came up with that phrase, but it's a good one. Where God guides, God provides. And mostly, God provides himself. I don't want you to miss that. Yes, God provides people. That's us. And yes, God provides materials. That's stuff. God provides a plan and a purpose. But the real power and beauty of serving God as we build in his kingdom is that God provides He's present with us. Listen to what Jesus said in John 12. Jesus answered them saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. One community, when we answer the call to serve God and build in his kingdom, we will be called to die to self and to serve Jesus. At the same time, we will find that Jesus goes before us and goes with us as we serve in his kingdom. The work of God is always blessed by the presence of the living Savior 
who joins us and sees us as we serve him. Let me ask you this question. If God is with us, and I don't mean if God's on our side. I mean God is with us. He is present in everything that we will face as a church as we build in his kingdom. If God is both in favor of us and physically present with us, what else do we need? Nothing. We need the living God working amongst us, and he has promised us that he will do that. In Ezra 5, we see the hand of the living God blessing, providing, and guiding people. Now let's look quickly at verses 6 through 11. This is the beginning of the letter that is sent by Governor Tatanai to King Darius. The governor of the region beyond the river and Shethar Bosni and his companions, the Persians, who were in the region beyond the river, to Darius the king, they sent him a letter in which was written the, the following. To Darius the king, all peace. Let it be known to the king that we went into the province of Judea to the temple of the great God, which is being built with heavy stones and timber, and it's being laid in the walls, and this work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked these elders and spoke thus to them, who commanded you to build this temple and to finish these walls. We also added them their names to inform you, that we might write the names of the men who were chief among them. And thus they returned us an answer. Now hear their answer. This is so important. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and completed. Now, the reason that I emphasize the heavy stones and timbers is because there are some Bible commentators, and I would agree with this, that the reason that Tatanai included that in his letter is because there was confusion about what, what was actually being built. He was saying, man, they are making this thing rock solid, kind of looks like a fortress. They say it's a temple, but it kind of looks like a fortress. And what Tatanai is saying is, I don't really know what they're building. And Satan, the master of deceit, the father of lies, creates confusion here. What's actually being built? Is it really a temple for God or is it a fortress? And so Tatanai wants to tell King Darius, not really sure what's going on here. And so Satan, the master of deception, creates potential confusion. The solution to this potential confusion was to speak plainly the truth of God. The Israelites here say, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago. So one community, don't make any mistake. As we advance in the service of God, Satan may sow confusion in the world about our motives and purposes. But there is one answer to our real purpose, and that is to clearly give an account that our lives are given to glorify God and his gospel. God calls upon us to join his mighty work to bring glory to his name and light to his gospel. That is our purpose, none other. Our answer to who commands our works is found in the words of Jesus in Matthew 28. Why are we doing this? Why are we here this morning? Why are we in this building? Why are we talking about building another building? There's an answer for that, found in Matthew 28. This is Jesus talking. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. There can be no confusion concerning what we are about as the people of God. The Great Commission makes it crystal clear 
that we are to spread the gospel and make disciples of men all to the glory of God. Let's go quickly to verses 13 through 17, and this ends the chapter. However, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to build this house of God. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple, that was in Jerusalem and carried into the temple of Babylon, those King Cyrus took from the temple of Babylon, and they were given to one named Shezbazar, whom he made governor. Some people believe that believe that's Zerubbabel. And he said to him, Take these articles and go, carry them to the temple site that is in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on its former site. Then the same Shezbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, which is in Jerusalem. And from that time, even until now, it has been under construction and is not finished. Now, therefore, if it seems good to the king, that's King Darius, let a search be made in the king's treasure house, which is there in Babylon, whether it is so that a decree was issued by King Cyrus to build the house of God in Jerusalem, <coughs> and let the king send us his pleasure concerning the matter. All right, so here's where we are. There has been a militarily enforced cessation of God's plan to rebuild the temple. And then God, through his prophet, says, we're going to build. And they start building. And Satan throws opposition at them. And they have to get permission from the then king Darius, who had taken the place of King Artaxerxes. So they send him a letter. Again, bureaucracy. But in this letter, there's a clear proclamation of the commander, commander who is behind this project, and that commander is God. Now, and when we get to Ezra 6, which we're not going to do today, we'll see how that letter was answered. But here's what I want you to gather from what we've studied today, and with this, we'll end. We have been called by God as the people of God to serve in the building of his kingdom, all for the sake of the gospel. And just like in Ezra chapter 1, God has called us into his supernatural process of building his king, kingdom and showing his good news to the world. Did you ever think about this? That the calling upon my life and your life is an act of God's love. You were given a new birth. You were given the Holy Spirit. You were given the likeness of God. You were made as finely as a Stradivarius violin for a purpose. And that purpose is to serve God. And God loves you so much that he will not let you or I rest until we are serving that purpose. It's an act of love. And just like in chapter 2 of Ezra, God has provided people and resources for his work. At the same time, he's working in our hearts to get us to value the things of heaven. Just like in Ezra 3, God has given us a call to sacrifice to him first so that we can build on his relationship and build upon his goodness and grace. To work based on who God is, not to work based on who we are. And then in Ezra chapter 4, we see that, God, that Satan will seek to stop the work of God through the poison of compromise, discouragement, frustration, lies, deception, even bureaucracy. But just like in Ezra chapter 5, God commands us to return again and again to the work of building with him and his kingdom, glorifying his name and shining the light of Jesus into a dark, lost world. 
as we answer this call, we know with absolute assurance that Jesus will bless us with his presence, his power, his plans, and his provision. The essence of Ezra 5 is this. Who has commanded you? Who has commanded us? The answer is the God in heaven and King Jesus. And he calls us to build in his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who provides. You are a God who calls people. And you have made us in your image so that we might be in relationship with you and serve you as we build in your kingdom. God, we know that we get no glory that we can keep to ourselves for the things that you're building. But we know that as a Heavenly Father who loves us, you have called us to build by your side, all to your glory, all to the proclamation of the gospel. We pray that as we grow as a church, that we will not be so concerned about growing numerically or growing into physical structures, though those are very important. I pray that you will help us to grow in our love for you that we will grow in valuing the things of heaven and eternity more than the things of this world, and that we will seek to be transformed into your image as we serve you every day of the rest of our lives. Heavenly Father, thank you for loving us. We ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.